With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The message on iTunes. I'm Ezra Klein, host of the new Vox podcast, The Weeds. Every week I'm joined by Sarah Cliff and Matthew Iglesias for a podcast for people who follow politics because they care about and love policy. We talk about healthcare, about economics, about the future of work. We get very nerdy. We get very into the weeds. In a way, you won't hear anywhere else. So subscribe to The Weeds now wherever you get your podcasts or at iTunes.com slash Panoply and join us for a discussion about what's really important in politics. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of November 2nd, 2015. On this week's show, we'll discuss the Royals' victory over the Mets in the World Series, the secret to Kansas City success, and Fox analyst Frank Thomas's statement after the game that the Mets have nothing to hold their heads down for, except they didn't play that well and they gave away this World Series. We'll also talk about ESPN's... Also, the ligaments in the neck. <laughs> We'll talk about ESPN's decision to shut down Grantland, what it says about sports journalism and the worldwide leader, and Frank Thomas's statement that ESPN has nothing to hold their head down. <laughs> and we'll be joined by Michelle Roberts, the executive director of the NBA Players Association, who'll talk about her first year as the leader of one of the world's most prominent unions and a woman who would definitely beat Frank Thomas in a battle of wits. Joining me in Washington, D.C., it's a man who would definitely beat Frank Thomas in a battle of wits. <laughs> The bar is low. It's Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Very low bar. You'd beat... What about Pete Rose, though? Uh, you would beat Harold Reynolds. Mm. Wow. 
You would beat many former American League baseball players wow. on a battle of wits. Alex second baseman to second baseman. <laughs> A-Rod's pretty good. A-Rod's pretty sharp. Oh, God. Uh, A-Rod's great. How, how does Harold Reynolds feel? They bring A-Rod in for half an inning. A-Rod blows him away. As, as I uh, tweeted, A-Rod's skill as a baseball player is to Harold Reynolds' skill as a baseball player as A-Rod's skill as a broadcaster is to Harold Reynolds' skill as a broadcaster. That is today's Hang Up and Listen analogy watch. Uh, hey, it's Mike Pesca my, with us from New York, my fellow Mets fan, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, and a man who has solved sports fandom because he never experiences any sorrow when his favorite teams lose, only joy when they win. How are you feeling today, Mike? I don't feel angst. I don't feel anger. I feel some ire, and we could get to the ire. But you know what? You know what I enjoy? I enjoy having the whipping boys, the scapegoats that are Joe Buck and Harold Reynolds. And you know those guys are bad because Verducci never gets lumped in, nor should he, although he always comes. He comes Mm -hmm. pre-chambered with the quips that don't quite get there, (laughs) you know? But, you know, there was one point in the game. So most of the stuff that Joe Buck says is just stupid from a baseball perspective. But, you know, it's the idea of bombast. And if uh, Al Gore is a old person's idea of a young person, then Joe Buck is a boring person's idea of an interesting person. And I've long talked about interesting, uh, boring people, rather. And they think that the only way to be interesting is the binary of intense versus not intense or up versus down. There are no shades and nuance. But... I, I know exactly when this comment happened, and you will too when I s- recite it to you. So my girlfriend and I, such a good girlfriend during the World Series, every single pitch we watch together, uh, we're watching the game, and Joe Buck says, as the shot on TV, 11.59 turns to 12, he says, with great import, it is now November 2nd in the East. And we both look at each other and just bl- <laughs> burst out laughing. <laughs> and the mountain people fought. fear for a bountiful harvest. I think he might have been confused. I think he thought that it was November 1st, which would have been more dramatic. You know, Jeter, Mr. November, that sort of thing. Yeah. I'm just making excuses for Joe Buck. I particularly liked when Joe Buck assumed that everyone had been watching the National Football League game. Oh, yeah. If you're jo- over to the baseball right, game. He said, if you're joining us now, I'm like, why would anyone be joining you now? It is now November 2nd in the East. But yes, <laughs> he did say that. We haven't gotten to the segment yet. Oh, yeah, that's right. Gentlemen. That's oh, right. So, so there's no whimsy watch this week. As as last with last week, don't want to force the whimsy. Do have uh, an announcement. Uh, we talked about this last week as well, but uh, the big slate Superfest live show is coming up November sixteenth, two thousand fifteen, at seven p.m. at Town Hall in New York. We'll be there. The Political Gab Fest will be there. The Culture Gab Fest will be there. Dan Coyce will host. Some special guests will be in tow as well, and uh, a new wrinkle is that we are going to raffle off a basket of fruit fruit slash other <laughs> items Muffins? as a thank you to our Slate Plus members at the show. So we're curating a basket. The Culture Fest and the Political Gab Fest are each curating baskets. Culture we'll have, fruit, politics fruit, sports fruit. Ours will not have durian in it. That really smells. Um, so if you're interested, if you want... Um, some books, some movies, some other things that Fruit. that we're uh, uh, going to toss in there. You want to get get in on this raffle. Um, if you're a Slate Plus member, you can email superfestraffle at gmail.com with your name, and you'll be entered into the raffle. If you want to enter and you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. 
it's just uh, five dollars uh, for a month or fifty dollars for a year, and you get uh, ad-free versions of our podcasts along with bonus segments. You can also try for a couple weeks before you buy by going to slate.com slash hangout plus. Um, so if you want it on the raffle, do that. If you want to get tickets to the live show where we will do the raffle, it's uh, slate.com slash superfest NYC. Um, we hope to see you there. I've thought of some sports fruit, but I'll tell you at the end of the show. Let's at get the end the of the segment. show. All right, fine. Ty Cobb, Chet Lemon. Legrand Orange. Yes, Rusty that's the stop. Yes, Rusty Stop, exactly. Uh, another uh, Slate Plus themed announcement here on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week. We will talk to one of Slate's most beloved writers, Seth Stevenson, about his long quest to go to umpiring school and how he is hoping to realize it this year with the help of Slate Plus. Seth Stevenson, umpiring, be there. And again, to hear bonus segments, uh, go to slate.com slash plus to sign up and you can get a free two-week trial. All right. Uh, you guys ready to start the uh, baseball segment? Oh, my God. Re- restart? Go. Is it too late for me to say uh, 16 in the clip and one in the hole? Verducci's got some quips that'll leave you cold. <laughs> 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 On Sunday night in Queens, the Kansas City Royals crowned themselves the kings of baseball is the cheesy lead that I would have written wow, if awesome. I had been in the press box for game five of the World Series. But alas, I was at home watching the Royals win yet another game that I did not attend. The Mets are one and now. When I went to games, I was at Game 3. 4-0 for the Royals and the other ones. Um, the Royals won yet another game when they were losing in the late innings. Kansas City was the first team since 1939 to clinch by winning a game when they were losing by at least two runs in the ninth or beyond. They're the first team ever to win three games in a single World Series, which they were losing in the eighth inning or later. Mets relief pitcher Jairus Familia blew the save in all three Mets losses, although he only gave up one earned run in five innings pitched in the entire series. Um, That earned run came in game one when he gave up a tying home run to Alex Gordon. In the ninth in game four, the Mets were undone in large part uh, by an error by a non-gay lifestyle embracing second baseman Daniel Murphy. In game five, Manager Terry Collins decided to leave starter Matt Harvey in to begin the ninth with a 2 nothing lead, only to see Harvey give up a walk and a double. Familia then allowed the tying run when Eric Hosmer dashed in from third base with two outs and beat Lucas Duda's wild throw, which would have ended the game in the Mets' favor if it had been on target. If it hadn't been wild. Stefan, as a semi-dispassionate, Royals-hating, non-Mets fan, why don't you do the gentlemanly thing here and start off by talking about what the Royals did rather than what the Mets did or did not do. Because I imagine this segment will will feature a good mm-hmm. amount of wallowing. In Mets. Yeah. mets So talk about the Royals. Is, is talk Lol, about is, the Royals. Is Lol Mets back? Can we, can we revive Lol Mets? You can try. Give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. Uh, the Royals did a lot well. I mean, mostly what they did well is they... They, they accumulated timely hits. They exploited uh, weaknesses in, in the Mets that they seem to have scouted, which is always interesting. We talked about one last week um, in uh, the, the Kansas City Papers uh, recap of last night's game. The Royals did say that we were looking for an opportunity to take advantage of Lucas Duda at first base because we didn't think he was a very good fielder. Um, so I think that was planned in some ways to give him the right opportunity. If something was going to happen with Duda, take advantage of it. I mean, I think that that was an interesting takeaway from this. I think the narrative is, was overwritten 
during the series and during the playoffs about the the grid and the hard and the contact and the style of Royals play, the one base at a time, move the line stuff. But they clearly did do some of those things. Um, they clearly did capitalize on Mets' errors or force the Mets into making bad plays. Um, you know, Daniel Murphy also kind of screwed up several times in the field. So regression to the mean there, hitting and fielding. I guess the regression to the mean was really the hitting. He's not a very good fielder. <laughs> regression to the mean and being uh, who we thought he was. So, Mike, as uh, one of the two Mets fans on the panel, are you able to see this as a Royals victory or can you only see it as a Mets loss? Uh, the strange thing is that so much of the narrative or what, what the keys to the series would be did come true, but I thought they came true in kind of accidental ways. It is true that the Royals relievers are the class of their pitching staff and the starters weren't good, but I thought this would present itself. I was just ready to write the article after the Mets won the World Series that said, people, starters pitch more innings than relievers. But weirdly... Even though the Mets starters outpitched the Royals starters, though not tremendously, but in aggregate they did, the Royals' relief pitching was really good. And the mm -hmm. Royals' inability or the uh, Royals' tendency not to strike out paid off. Although with Matt Harvey, he did strike a lot of Royals out. Now, at some point, I'm going to, um, you could ask me later on to channel Mike Frances if you want to analyze the decision to put <laughs> Harvey in. But for now, I'm just going to channel a 30 for 30 promo when I ask, what if I told you that Jerry's Familia would pitch two innings of hitless ball in the game that decided the World Series and that he'd come in with a lead? What if I told you that? And that happened and they lost. And that's inconceivable. Oh, I'm about to go Francesa, Josh. You get in there and then I'll Francesa it up. What I find interesting is uh, the conflation of character mm -hmm. and heart with the ability to make contact and not Steal strike <laughs> out um, yeah. and and field well. Um, I think we could all agree that once you're in the playoffs and perhaps not even in the playoffs, that every team is trying to, to hit win the, the game. Um, but the way that the Royals play, which is a really fun style of play and one that does, I think, harken back to a previous era of, of baseball and can make one nostalgic for an arrow in defense and and speed and contact were very important and are you know things that are that are again important in the post steroidal age. So so I think it's understandable that you know the way that the the team has talked about it, it's kind of in the same sentence. It's the team doesn't strike out very much and they've just got great character and heart and grit and they've come back you know seven times when trailing by and nobody believes in them, Josh. And and putting all of those things together, I I feel like I should have like kind of come back at Randy a little bit last week and saying that uh, Ned Yost is a great manager because the Royals have come back from four runs down in elimination games two seasons in a row. That's it's not a particularly uh, convincing sample size, um, but I I just think that as uh, both of you guys have said, the Royals have great relief pitching. Um, they put a lot of pressure on the Mets. They have really good players and they have a very deep team. The Mets in this World Series only had two players with an OPS over 600, which is uh, Conforto and Granderson. The Royals didn't hit that well, but they at least had six players with an OPS over 600. Um, and those are the reasons that the team won. I don't think that 
they were any more relentless. Uh, I don't think gritty. they tried. No, they tried harder than the Mets, but um, but what the they characteristics do, that they did have. But a lot their style of play did enable them to capitalize in situations where they needed to demonstrate to come from behind. I mean, the Mets led for what forty six half innings in the World Series. The Royals led for twenty four, which just indicates that the Mets' starting pitching was pretty good, and they held leads for most of the game, and then they lost them toward the end, and the Royals. The, the Royals' relief pitching was terrific, and the Royals did things like steal bases, like work walks, like get timely hits. I mean, Royals they were, not really they were, known for working walks, but they did. But they no. did. Not at all known for working yeah. walks, but they did work walks when they needed to a couple of times uh, in Game 4. So... You know, grit, character hard, equals character, good. character equals good. superior relief. But they pitching. were aggressive is what they were, and I think that is obviously part of their style of play, but their their aggressiveness was useful and successful in moments when it needed to be. What does Mike Francesa think? How do you let Harvey face the tying run? You let a guy who's 23 argue you, it's your job as the manager to decide who pitches. You let a guy argue into pitching the ninth. Fine. He wants to pitch the ninth. He goes out there. He's amped up. I understand. Don't jump in here. This is Mike Francesa's dramatic pause. I understand. But when that guy gets on, because clearly he has too much adrenaline, it's over for Harvey. That's when you bring Familia in. I do not understand letting him pitch in game three when they, uh, when they were getting blown out to get the experience under his belt to blow it in game five. Inexcusable. And when Harold Reynolds says no one can fault Collins for making that decision, not the decision to pitch Harvey, to let him pitch to Hosma. Inexcusable. All right. That was it. What does Mike Pesca think? <laughs> I think it was actually inexcusable to let him. I don't understand. It was an abdication. Now, it's a weird thing. Ned Yost, we found out in this series that Ned Yost's managerial style is just not to manage. He doesn't even call for bunts. Guys bunt on their own. Guys steal on their own. You know, you put Jared Dyson in. Obviously, he's there to steal. He doesn't manage. He so inactively manages. And I guess Collins took a page from Ned Yost. Like, Cespedes clearly hurt. Should have been pinch hit for. Couldn't do anything. But let him in. He said, I wanted to be in. Harvey said he wanted be and at some point you got to manage i don't think the ned yo school of not making a decision is right in most circumstances uh why don't we listen to a little bit of terry collins he was talking to fox sports's ken rosenthal after the game terry we all saw the conversations with harvey after the eighth inning how comfortable were you with the decision to leave him in the game well i mean i know he was throwing well but uh you know you know kenny one of the things i, I try to pride myself in here is really trust my players I mean, it's one of the things I learned through the years of, of managing, you know, and, and, and this kid who has had a tough year, um, he looked me in the eye and he said, I got to have this game. You know, I, I, I've got to have this. I want this game. And, you know, he, for what he's been through and what he's uh, trying to accomplish, I said, didn't go out there and get it, you know, get the job done. And, uh, you know, it just didn't happen. So certainly, you know, I'm a second guess myself for a long time, but, uh, you know, again, I, I truly believe you got to support your players once in a while. And, and that kind of heart and that kind of desire, you know, it's hard to find. Can I just say about that, that that I don't blame Collins. I think most people are saying letting letting him go pitch the ninth was fine. And he answered the question as if that was the only question. That wasn't the question. It was that extra batter. It's the tying run. Letting him face the tying run 
in the ninth after you wanted to pull him, after giving up a leadoff walk, after his pitch count was almost 110. Strange. As a Mets fan, and I'm not saying this out of any kind of mistaken belief that this is a long-suffering fan base because, as we've established, that's not true. But it's kind of a fatalism developed during this series. I take some solace in the fact that I am convinced that no matter what he had done, they still would have lost that game. (laughs) I think if he had brought in Familia to start the ninth, they would have lost. I think that um, he brought in Familia to start the ninth in an earlier game with a lead, and they lost. I think that if the Mets had won the game, they would have lost the series. You're not being very empirical, Josh. I'm not being very empirical, but as speaking as a fan, I'm allowed to be a fan of the teams that I care about. I think that the managerial decisions in the series did not decide the series, and I think that people overstate the effect of managerial decisions because they're something that can be debated and that takes away agency from the players. We don't know that Hosmer wouldn't have gotten the same hit off of Familia and maybe it was the wrong decision but what was the effect on the outcome of the game we don't know as a fan I say the effect was zero percent though I would say that that would have been a terrible answer if Terry Collins had given it <laughs> Terry well, Collins not a Mets fan no matter Mets who employee. no matter who I brought it come on we were losing guys don't you know that we were losing so I went to Game three of the series when uh, the life had not been drained out of me. Very fun. Mets won that that game nine to three. And uh, this is an occasion for me to uh, mention one of the little discussed um, points of the series. I don't think anybody has has mentioned it that I've read. Uh, there have been there have been a few stories about it throughout the year. But Yoena Cespedes. Hits the ball off his knee in the last game. Probably won't be a Met again. Was a hero in the second half of the season. Didn't do that much in the World Series. This man has a walk-up song that is about him. That was commissioned by him and is about him. And consists of repetitions of his name. Uh, Zach, can we listen to that walk-up song? I got the power. You know the name. Um, do we think that the Mets lost the series because of the cockiness of having uh, your personalized. own walk-up, yeah, personalized walk-up songs? The, just the hubris, the cockiness, the brashness. That's not old school. You don't write your own walk-up song. I loved that so much. And it was really fun to to be uh, at that game. The crowd was so... In- you kind of get lulled as like a fan of a home team and that kind of environment so loud like everybody's so excited when the uh, when the crowd rises with two strikes and a royal hit it up you're like there's no possible way the visiting team could win this game how could this guy get a hit everyone in the stands is rooting against it to happen and then you remember that like it's baseball and there's like not really that pronounced of a home field advantage the Mets defense is kind of porous and now up to bat is Wilmer Flores when you see a bull you hope he don't gore us here comes batting Wilmer Flores lots of Jews like to dance to horrors now here comes Wilmer Flores I could do that you know what else sucked for the Mets (laughs) David Wright's throw on the Lucas Duda throw play huh 
scoring the time. The David throw Wright, that led to the throw? The throw that led to the throw, I think, a little overlooked the fact. I know David Wright has, like, no cartilage or bones on the right side of his body anymore. But he took two little jog steps, little skip steps, side-armed it, and it was a, it was not a bullet, shall we say. And I understand that David Wright has been injured and he does not have terrific arm strength. But that did, I think, give Hosmer an extra step, which may or may not have put extra pressure on Lucas Duda to, to rush that throw. Or they just both made shitty throws and Hosmer made a smart play. Don't you think a decent throw had him by a step? Well, I think a decent throw from Wright and followed by a decent throw from Lucas Duda had him by three steps. Okay, well, we're talking about the throw once once Duda had the ball. I was talking about the, the David Wright throw, though. Why are you blaming David Wright? <laughs> he <laughs> threw he... the ball to a guy who could throw the ball 90 feet in, in a routine way. <laughs> I can't assume the double play. In fact, with the Mets, according to the Levine theory, can't assume anything. Can't assume anything but losing. But I thought that that was a, what a normal person parlance would be. Uh, what do you think the chances are that Harvey told Collins to tell him to take him out of the game so he could just say, no way, I'm staying in to burnish his reputation? That's my conspiracy theory. I think Harvey wanted at, wanted to be told he couldn't be in the game so he could go back in the game and be the hero. Dark Knight, Dark Knight, the legend of the Dark Knight. And then he loses no one, no one mentions that. Sober oh my K. God! If Matt Harvey's arm falls off and he doesn't pitch again, oof! Why would come on, dude? Come on! Not going to happen. Yeah, that extra, that extra batter is really, really going to do it. Well, the extra forty innings or whatever. Scott um, Boris, Scott Boris might be right. Should we talk about the Royals a little bit? So here's how we should we should wrap things up. The Mets have great young pitching, um, but there's. Just a lot of talent in the National League. I think the Cubs are better positioned to be good for years to come because they have young talent at all positions. The Pirates and the Cardinals both won either at or around 100 games. The Dodgers have a crap ton of money. Money. I think the Nationals had more talent and a lot than the money. Mets this year. And so, as again, as a fan, but also I think as a rational analyst this time, you can't really say... Oh, they were close this time, but they'll like go get them next year. Like that was to the to the extent that this was disappointing, and I'm not particularly disappointed. I think it's because um, ra- the rational side of me thinks that it's just not likely that. I mean, even even if they are a good team, I just think it's not likely that they'll be back in the World Series again. Well, a, lot for went, the Royals, a lot went right for the Mets. Mm-hmm. Organizationally, a lot went right. They made great moves in the second half to improve the roster. I don't anticipate the Mets spending a lot of money. This is not an organization that has escaped its financial problems, as far as I can tell. Um, so I don't see, you know, they, they what was their payroll? Like 20th in baseball. Look, at the end. Uh, guys, I think that if they had not beat the Cubs, they would say, you know, they have a bright future. And they have four pitchers who we could mm-hmm. think are going to have, you know, ERAs right around three anchoring if a rotation. Healthy. If healthy, but then they also have, Five, but then they also have Wheeler who might be able to help, you know, Nice had a bad season. He could come back. And these guys are all under team control and are all getting paid less than a million dollars. And other than them, they're a pretty mediocre team. And sure, they signed Cespedes and he did well down the stretch. And sure, Daniel Murphy came out of nowhere. But if he could just get some version of that magic, there is no reason to think that reliably seven innings out of uh, four starters won't dampen no matter what the Cubs, Nationals, or your uh, various Milwaukee Brewers can but, throw at you. But but what I'm saying is the, the Royals were 
you know, one inning away from losing to the Astros. And now their championship kind of seems inevitable. And even if all of those things happen, you know, that you just described, the chances that the Mets are back in the World Series are still slim. Well, the ch- it's not likely, but I would say that they're going into the season the first or second most likely. They'll be favorited. Favorited? They'll be the favorites of Las Vegas. Um, maybe I don't, the Cubs I don't agree with that. Yeah, they'll be, I think they'll be the second favorite team to come out of the NL. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that either. Um, but let, I, and, and the Royals, so I think we can get lulled into thinking that there is some sort of like, oh, you you fail and then you succeed because you have the experience. Or, but, you know, I think we can get lulled into thinking that's more likely than it is because the Royals lost last year and then came back to win. But, like, the Rangers lost in heartbreaking fashion a few years ago and they didn't come back to win the World Series. But, you know, this team, Ranny said last week – um, that he sees that they've got a couple more years of contention in them. And more than the Mets, I think the depth of their roster, you don't have to do that much wishful thinking to say, like, even if a couple of these guys get hurt or aren't as good next year, they still have a lot of talent um, in the pipeline, and a lot of talent on the major league roster. So I think that their continued goodness um you know is not wishful thinking. and let's not uh let's not understate the how dramatic and how 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 impressive dayton moore's ability to transform that organization in the last decade has been i mean this was a, a franchise that enjoyed great success in the 1970s and 80s um but when finances started to dominate who was good in baseball completely fell off the face of the map. Also and by their own poor management. Of they're also their decisions. own poor management. And this was a team that never spent money in the 90s and the zero zeros. And B has a, a penurious union busting owner, not one of the best people in in sports ownership, which is saying a lot. Um, and yet they spent enough and did enough on the baseball side to become a successful and very interesting team. By the way, they've already posted Las Vegas World Series odds. Dodgers favorite, and then there's a group of Mets, Blue Jays, Cubs, and Nationals. So, they're they're so maybe Mike was right. Nah, it's okay. Depends on who they sign in the off season. Depends on how gigantic that contusion on Cespedes's knee is. Hang up and listen is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Um, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices. Music. Breathing, but you know, I'm not gonna mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to the message on iTunes. On June 11th, 2011, Bill Simmons wrote an essay called Welcome to Grantland, which the subhead described as the story behind the launch of our site. The piece began with Simmons describing a Super Bowl outing in which only Jimmy Kimmel's inner circle was invited. His girlfriend, Jimmy's cousin Sal, two executive producers and two buddies, along with two other writers and Bill Simmons. After a detour to describe Coldplay rehearsing at the Super Bowl, Simmons described his four goals for the site. To find writers we liked and let them do their thing, 
find sponsors we liked and integrate them within the site so readers didn't have to pay for content. And so we didn't have to gravitate toward quantity over quality just to chase page views. Number three, to take advantage of a little extra creative leeway for the right reasons and not the wrong ones. And four, to hire the right blend of people, mostly young, mostly up-and-comers, all good people with good ideas who aren't afraid to share them. Over the last four years plus, Grandland met three of those four goals. The site had great up-and-coming writers who did their thing, and they used their creative leeway to good effect. It was never a huge profit center, though, and it was never going to be sponsor integration or not. And with Bill Simmons gone to HBO and ESPN having just laid off roughly 300 employees and looking to cut more costs, the worldwide leader announced on Friday that it was shutting the site down, saying the company would direct our time and energy going forward to projects that we believe will have a broader and more significant impact across our enterprise. I was sad that this happened because I have friends at Grandland and I also like reading it. I was more a fan of the site's sports stuff than the pop culture stuff, but I was very glad that all of Grandland existed. It had the great blend of day-to-day analysis, which was exemplified by Zach Lowe's NBA coverage. It was a kind of writer's paradise with a big pocketed media company giving a great writer like Brian Phillips, for example, the time and resources to write ambitious and strange stories about sumo wrestling and the Iditarod. Uh, Mike, what do you make of the end of Grantland. This is a story, I think, about the evils or at least the downside, the flaws of the U.S. corporation, the structure, because it all trickled down from Disney perceiving ESPN as being slightly less of the gigantic bloated cash cow that it always has been, which is true if you look at the rates that they get from cable subscribers. So that somehow trickles down to a couple maybe obvious choices. We don't resign Colin Cowherd. We cut Keith Oberman. But then they cut staffers, 100 staffers, who most of which we haven't heard of. But it doesn't make sense for such a lucrative industry, except if the corporate bosses are saying cut it to the bone. And then, of course, Grantland is going to be on the chopping block because even though it's excellent, I want to celebrate it's excellent from a business standpoint, from just being counting cliche dollars and cents. It's not as remunerative as uh, stupid NBA postgame shows. And what it means is that for ESPN... They're down to like six people or people I can name on both hands that make that place something other than the place you just have to suffer through to watch the NFL games that you love. Actually, maybe I'm being a little cruel. The technical side of production is really good. But they have Bob Lee and they have Jeremy Schapp and they have uh, Scott Van Pelt and they have Don Van Atta and they have the uh, Fainaru brothers, Fainaru and Fainaru Wata. Is that right? Wata. Yeah. So, but that's it, right? And so it's just. I never put much faith in them as anything other than a faceless, horrible corporate behemoth, but this really underlines that. And I'm sad to see Grant Lango very much. Also sad to see Grant Lango, but I but part of me feels like it was salvageable even in the corporate horribleness of ESPN. And I think a lot of the blame does have to fall at Bill Simmons's feet. Um, you know, the site's strength and its weakness, its fatal weakness, was Simmons. Simmons was visionary. Uh, he and Connor Shell at ESPN came up with the idea for 30 for 30. It was Simmons that really wanted to make it into a, a blowout series. Um, it was a big, ambitious idea. Simmons does deserve credit for bringing together those young, smart people and allowing them to do their things, both writers and editors. Um, Grantling grew way beyond Simmons's pedestrian tastes and his views because of those people, like our friends Brian Phillips and Brian Curtis. John Hawk did those great documentaries um, for the site. Um, you know, 
it was brilliant. It was bloated. It was enthusiastic. And that's Simmons. And then it also reflected Simmons's faults. And this is a management issue. Simmons is self-important, right? He is impulsive. He is immature. And I think that undermined Grantland ultimately, because to run a business, you got to grow as an adult. Simmons clung to the snarky tweets. He clung to the petty infighting with ESPN management. He cultivated those fights. He wanted those fights. He clearly didn't back away from them. And I think he might have put those ahead of the business he created, um, ahead of the employees for whom he was responsible. And when he lost the support of senior management in ESPN, I think that made it very, very easy for ESPN management to say, this is not essential. We can integrate the better stuff from Grantland into the main website. Um, but I think there was probably a way if Simmons hadn't alienated management or hadn't fallen out with management for whatever reasons for Grantland to retain its separate character. I mean, it's not as if, you know, it's not as if it's that hard to keep a web page with dedicated employees and a dedicated name going. I, I think you're being pretty ungenerous there. I think Simmons's taste was totally validated by Grantland and the people that you mentioned were hired by Simmons. I'm and giving put, him credit for all of that. He put together the I'm the giving website. him credit for everything. And all and he seems like based on stuff that I know and stuff that people have written and said publicly that he was at least for the people who worked there fantastic boss and manager um I, kind of the exact opposite of what Jason Whitlock was right. at the undefeated. I think he did have those sorts of fights with management and but i think that's what undermined him i think i agree with everything you're saying and i'm not saying that he wasn't all of those things he is visionary and he did create this terrific terrific product and bring in all of these wonderful elements of it but i think when you put your ego and i think the management fights are, are what i'm talking about mostly it jeopardized what he created well bill simmons is Certainly not unique in being a, a quote-unquote star player with an ego who can be demanding and hard to work with. That's like every person <laughs> who has a high profile in, in media or in any other industry. And I think when ESPN saw Simmons as being kind of essential to their bottom line and being, um, you know, bringing more value than he did trouble to them, then it was totally worth it. Kind of the miracle of Grantland was that it existed in the first place because Mike, I mean, maybe more implicitly than explicitly, it's kind of antithetical to a lot of things that ESPN stood for. And to have this kind of small entity within your larger company that is like fighting against kind of the world of hot takes and is being like weird and discursive, um, it, it just doesn't seem like something ESPN would ever want to do, much less maintain. And I guess it's to their credit that they did it in the first place, even if it was to kind of placate Simmons or give him what he wanted. And then when Simmons left, they're like, well, forget this. But 
you know, do you agree that it was just weird and we should be thankful that it existed at all? Yeah, and I think to blame Simmons for his flaws, first of all, without those personality traits, like seeing himself as a star and establishing himself and having this ego, there'd be no Grantland. Grantland was born out of, yep. it wasn't just a byproduct Agree. of this guy. It was born out of him wanting to shape this. Second thing is, Stefan, I think you're punishing him for, you said, his pedestrian tastes. I look at it more like, he, you know, well, first of all, I'd say that, you know, to blame him for, you know, the, it, it, Grantland ceased to exist because of Simmons' flaws. That's like saying, that's like blaming Harvey Weinstein for his flaws and the death of Miramax. That's like blaming Andy Warhol for his flaws and why the factory didn't continue. He's this visionary guy with a lot of complications. You take the good and the bad. But also, I think he knew that his public output, like his really long columns and his stuff with Cousin Sal, that was his bread and butter. But his taste maybe isn't always reflected in his output. And he loved people who could do things that he wouldn't Uh do. And that speaks really well of him. And I don't see why him leaving. Like He left because ESPN has proven itself to be a horrible partner to work with. He's in a much better situation. Looks like he's going to create something pretty good at HBO. The first interview I listened on his HBO podcast, he ripped into the way ESPN covered Deflategate in a really intelligent way, I thought. You could see that he was ref- it was so refreshing to be able to do that. Anyway, I this is the, to blame Simmons is like, um, I think, exactly the wrong thing. Simmons get, should get most of the credit. Well, Here's before, wait, wait, before, wait, before, Stefan, before you say anything, just to amend, the podcast is an independent venture. He, he's doing a uh, TV show for right. HBO. Okay, continue, Stefan. I don't disagree with anything that either of you said. What my belief is that when you get to the point where you are running an organization that has dozens of employees, you have a different kind of responsibility to them. And that may require you to behave more like a business person, more like a grown up, to not call Roger Goodell a liar publicly, to not take on management on Twitter, to behave in a way that forces you to step back from the personality that you created and helped you build, get where you are, that created this fantastic piece of internet journalism. Um, And I think that undermined Grantland as a whole. Um, and I don't think that people who worked there would deny that. But who does that? I mean, I mean, Sergey does that? Someone that wants to see their entity preserved listen, and, and a, those employees flourish. It's a well-known. It's a Sergey and Larry didn't do it. Um, it's a well-known trait of the entrepreneurs that the people with the gumption to start something are not the steady hands. Except to guide here's the it. distinction and between Sergey and Larry and Bill Simmons, money. Mike. Yeah. Mike, here's the distinction. The distinction is that Bill Simmons had to work within the constraints of this larger company. He chose to do that. He did not have to do that. He could have obviously created this entity independently and gotten backing from others. But he chose to work within this corporate structure. And when you work within a corporate structure, you are going to be hamstrung in some ways and you have to find compromises. I am not excusing ESPN management and I don't know all of the details of the relationship between Simmons and management. They are equally culpable in many ways, I am sure. So we need to have more shouting and a scoreboard to really bring this conversation to the next yeah. level. Um, I think it's going pretty well, though. So a couple uh, additional points I want to make. I think it's important to recognize that the Grandland, um, and that was a cheap joke in the intro, but it was, I, I thought it was worth mentioning that he wrote about Coldplay. But in the, you know, the Grandland as conceived in the beginning, and when we talked about mm-hmm. our first conversation in 2011, it was thought of as like long form, you know, the guys who were touted as being contributors were Chuck Klosterman, Malcolm Gladwell, and Dave Eggers. 
And I think it's important to recognize how the site changed and evolved. And again, I think that's a credit to Simmons and the people who worked there, that it wasn't like just long form noodling. The long form stuff that was written was really good. But I have to credit this point to my colleague, John Swansburg. He noted that they did like a better job than I think anybody online or anywhere else of kind of carving this middle path between modern day sabermetric uh, analysis and sort of like old fashioned, like, you know, experiential, you are there, or just like more about the feeling around sports. And they didn't veer too far in one direction, or they didn't like diss one kind or the other, they did both, or they did both in the same piece. And they did a really great, great job at it. And so I think it's to their credit that, you know, the, the site evolved and became its own, its own thing. And second thing is, this shows the dangers of not having any kind of corporate pressure on you. This could have happened to Slate when we were owned by Microsoft. And it was, it's good. You think it's good as like an editorial operation to like have this big pocketed company and you're just like a rounding error to them and you can just do whatever you want unless you like call Roger Goodell a liar, I guess. But that you, you know, they, you have enough money to like, you know, send people where you want to send them, but it's not that big compared to like the huge NFL or NBA contract. But when you don't, have the oppor- I think Simmons complained about this. When you don't have the opportunity to prove or the imperative to prove that you can succeed on your own as a financial entity, when times do get rough, mm-hmm. then they'll be like, these guys never made any money. We're going to get rid of them. And so I think as any kind of small, sc- scrappy company within a bigger company or whatever, you need to feel the kind of imperative or pressure to you know, monetize your shit <laughs> or else this could happen to you. Um, You know, I was thinking about Slate, and I was thinking about what this says overall. And there are are a couple of really troubling trends. And I've worked for two, maybe three companies in my adult life. One local public radio station, then NPR, then Slate. And I don't think in any of those cases you could prove that they were crushing the market, that they, well, I would say they all do this quality work, but one of them did the quality work with this mix of government backing and listener support. It was really weird. And Slate does this quality work and it's really quirky. But, you know, when it when you hold it up against BuzzFeed or when you hold it up against the Huffington Post, it's not disrupting the field. And so I feel there are exceptions to this, but I feel that this doesn't say good things about A, the ability of quality product to just sell well. Not, I'm not talking about quality product that's like a documentary that goes down hard. I'm talking about fun quality product that's on the intelligence side. I don't see the market embracing that. I don't see too much evidence of the market embracing that. You know, some of the good shows on HBO are the exception, but then I think you have a corporate boss who uh, understands the carve out for quality. And the second thing is, it's really as someone who does what I do, which is like a third sports, a third politics, and a third nonsense, it's really troubling to me that you need a pure play the brand has to be extremely pure and grantland was culture plus sports and that was just too confusing to people i don't know why it has to be that way is our attention so attenuated is our ability to hold two ideas in our head at once so impossible that you can't do culture and sports at once i don't know that's what the market seems to say or what disney corporation seems to think I mean, ESPN gave four years to this, and you could certainly argue that there are ways to integrate smart, intelligent, quirky, different, thoughtful, longer content 
into a more mainstream operation like ESPN's main website. Didn't feel like ESPN really tried to do that with no. Grantland. I mean, at all. I mean, Grantland was marginalized on the on the main ESPN webpage. Simmons complained fairly, whether he should have after he left or not is another question. Um, but he complained, I think, very fairly that it was marginalized on ESPN's mobile applications, too. Um, ESPN wasn't super supportive of this. And again, why? Because the metrics weren't there. I mean, it's very hard to gauge comm score numbers. Well, it's and, a chicken and egg thing, right? Sure. Um, you know, but there has to be some commitment there. And I think that for a company the size of ESPN, you can say they did make a commitment to Grantland and they gave it this platform. On the other hand, did they add enough that would have helped Grantland succeed financially? I don't know the answer to that. It sure didn't seem like it. And there are still people at ESPN who do good work, whether it's on the sure. website, the magazine, on the TV E60. side. But it's just like this is the group what Grantland did is just not ever going to be ESPN's core business. And it seems kind of increasingly like. The you know the Van Natta stuff you know the ESPN just put out put out this release on their uh, PR site talking about how it's the like greatest month ever on ESPN and like seven of the top ten stories were like Stardom or Sidem like Le'Veon Bell versus Lashawn McCoy. I, I mean, go with McCoy now since Bell's out for the season. <laughs> yeah, that just oh, oh my god, that's, we just made five million dollars. Just <laughs> rocketed to number one. <laughs> so so what Granlin did what Granlin did and what any of like the you know quality journalism on that site. It's always going to be like the the polish on, uh, uh, you know, the, the come, up, come up with some, some better analogy or metaphor. It's just not not central to what they do. It confers some prestige. And at least it's better than Fox, where they don't even try to confer any prestige on, on anything. But I think that's the best that we can hope for. Well, but now we have less to hope for, right? And uh, it, uh, certainly the election for 538.com. Hope is dead. You know, the election means 538.com survives as an ESPN entity. I don't know if they're making money either, but if ESPN really is cutting back to core content, fantasy stuff, the games, then the future can't bode terribly well for these uh, carve-out sites. All right, we're going to take a quick break before the next segment for a brief announcement. On next week's podcast, Josh, Mike, and Stefan will talk about the latest documentary from a hang-up-and-listen favorite, Jonathan Hawk. It's called The Gospel According to Mac, about Colorado football coach Bill McCartney, who was also the founder of the Promise Keepers Ministry. If you want to watch The Gospel According to Mac in advance of their conversation, the documentary airs on ESPN on Tuesday, November 3rd at 9 p.m. Eastern. Okay, now back to the show. The NBA season started last week with the Golden State Warriors receiving their championship rings in front of their home fans at Oracle Arena in Oakland. It's been just more than four months since Golden State beat Cleveland in the NBA Finals, but a lot has happened since then. Among the notable moves, uh, LaMarcus Aldridge going to San Antonio from Portland and DeAndre Jordan going to Dallas before changing his mind in a torrent of emojis and staying with the Clippers. On the first day of free agency uh, alone this summer, players signed $1.5 billion worth of contracts. And those numbers stand to increase in the coming years as the salary cap will rise starting with the 2016-2017 season when a new TV rights deal kicks in uh, that will pay the league $2.6 billion annually. In December of 2016, the NBA and the Players Association will have to decide 
whether to opt out of the collective bargaining agreement they signed in 2011. The person leading the decision-making process on the player side is Michelle Roberts, a kick-ass trial lawyer who took over as the Players Association's executive director last year. This is the first woman to head a major North American pro sports union. She also said the greatest uh, quote of 2015, according to our friend Max Linsky. My past is littered with the bones of men foolish enough to think I was someone they could sleep on. Michelle, you will be the least slept on guest and hang up and listen history. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. And um, a lot of the conversation since you started has been about your relationship um, and whether you'd call it a partnership with the new NBA commissioner, Adam Silver. Um, in my view, when people say oh, it should be more of a partnership than an adversarial they kind of want the labor to move closer to management. I wonder um, how you feel about, you know, people suggesting it should be more of a partnership than an adversarial relationship with management and with Adam Silver. I, I, you know, I, I will tell you that I have spent more time than I care to talking about whether it should be a partnership. And, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't care what you call it. What I want at the end of the day is for us to have gotten a good, good and fair deal through CBA negotiations, and so you know, I don't, I don't really spend a lot of time worrying about all of that. Um, you know, I don't want us to be at the series where we don't have to be. I do think that you know it's a fair use of the term partnership to the extent we can agree that there are things that we have in common and goals that we should share, and that is the betterment of the game and you know, making sure that the game continues to be successful. And so, sure, we're, we're partners in that. But you know, I'm not naive enough to think that there are not going to be periods of time, perhaps you know long periods of time and significant issues where we're not going to be on the same page. And so hopefully as adults, with at least that one common mission, the protection of the game, we can come out of this, uh, this, this next round of negotiations with everyone agreeing that each side got the best deal it could for its client. Common ground, yeah, but you represent the players, obviously. And when you arrived, you called the Players Association a mom-and-pop shop and pathetic. And mm -hmm. now the, the NBA Players Association actually dates to 1954. Those first 30 years, not very much was achieved, obviously. Baseball, though, had monumental successes starting in the late 1970s. But the three other sports haven't always enjoyed sort of union solidarity, professionalism, success. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's something about the evanescent nature of uh, the, the careers of, of athletes? And how do you change it in the, in the NBA's case? Well, let me start in, in, by responding to the comment that I did make that the NBPA was, run, was mm -hmm. much like a mom and pop shop. Believe me, I do think that the union has done a tremendous job um, for the players over the years, and it, it obviously began with the players making the determination that they wanted to be treated more fairly by the owners. And so I, don't, I didn't, by that comment, mean to poo-poo what I think has been the progress and success of the union. Mm -hmm. The comment was really a reflection of the way I believe that the, the, the union was being run by its staff. Not a reflection on the players, but I did think that the staff was not providing the services that it could and should be, and it was, frankly, being run like a mom-and-pop shop. This is, a, this is not the largest union in, in the country. It's not the smallest, but it is among the smaller unions. Um, however, our needs are significant, and the services that our players deserve are, 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 are significant as well. 
Um, you know, I, I do. People always comment to me on how successful baseball has been. I, you know, I also think that baseball had the privilege of, of, of Miller, and I had never, I didn't have an opportunity to meet him before he passed. But everything I've had, heard and read and, and been told about him suggests that he was quite special. And, and Marvin he Miller. did some, yes, he did some wonderful things for that for that players' association. And I, you know, it's not surprising that there has not been another that could that could sort of replicate his work. Um, but I think all of the the sports unions have to struggle with the the fact that there is a perception among many people in the in the community that that the owners have are owed the the major responsibility for the success of the game, and there's not a lot of sympathy when the players do things like say we want an alter, an alteration of the terms and conditions of our agreement and Surprisingly, basketball's never walked out, not in the last three cycles at least. They've been locked out. Um, but what always amuses me is everyone gets pissed at the players as opposed to the owners who are actually doing the locking out. So a lot of what we have to do is, is, is change the narrative so that folk understand that when there is a disagreement, it's not always and it's not perhaps even actually the fault of the players. Blame can be mutual, but we need to change the narrative where, where when there is a work stoppage, for some reason the, knee, the knee-jerk reaction is to blame it on the players, to call them greedy, they, they don't deserve more money, they make enough. Um, and without that kind of fan support, um, the owners have an advantage, and they have successfully managed to to take back much of the success that the union had achieved for the players. So what do you think the fairest way to distribute the money is? I'm sure you'd like, hey, no cap, what the market will bear. The owners aren't going to do that. So what's fair and what's unfair? The, the highest paid players have a cap, which is what's going on now. So LeBron James is severely underpaid, maybe more pay to the development league. And these are guys who might never be, uh, you know, members of your union, but it does seem to me that to pay a decent wage potentially is a little more humane than to, you know, have everyone who plays 40 games in an NBA uniform be millionaires. What's the best way to distribute that? You know, if I had a magic wand, things would look very different (laughs) than the way they look now. I don't. And so therefore, I don't I don't have a wish list of things that I think are reasonably capable of happening. What I do think, though, is this when when during the last CBA, the owners were were of the view and took the position that the game had not been as profitable in in what were the years that just passed at that time. Mm -hmm. And there needed to be a change in the division of division of monies between the players and the the owners. And and I don't necessarily I wasn't there, but I can't dispute because I wasn't there that in 2008-2009, as the rest of the country had to deal with the body blows given what's going on in the economy, that the owners did as well. So I'm assuming because I wasn't there, that the reason that the BRI split changed between the players and the owners was a reflection of the, of the presumed fact that the owners were losing money. That's not the case in today's market. In fact, the good news is that the game has become quite profitable and indeed exceeded the expectations of both the owners and the players. And so all I would ask as a sort of a general matter is that if, if, as the game becomes more profitable, then everybody, not only the, the, the marquee players, but everybody, all the owners and all the players should be able to enjoy this new profitability. So uh, an issue that is of, of interest to me and as important to me as a journalist and a fan is the early entry rules. Um, mm-hmm. Adam Silver had stated that 
They want to go from the one and done system to maybe two and done. You said, Mm -hmm. be happy with one and done. It's not going to be two and done. Um, My view is that it should be zero and done, and it's not a very complicated Mm -hmm. issue. Um, But it is collectively bargained. It's in the agreement now that you you have to be uh, 19 to get drafted Mm -hmm. into the NBA. It strikes me as being dumb, unfair, however you want to describe it. Um, Anti-competitive, restrictive. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But the the players who are, um, you know, not allowed to go in the NBA are not members of your union. So how do you see your responsibility for for those players, for the the kind of up-and-coming stars who are not allowed to go into the NBA at 18 or whatever age? Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting and, and, and somewhat complicated issue. I, you know, I, on the personal level, I agree with you. I think it's I think it's insane. You know, you know, I've been working since I was 13 because I could, and because somebody was prepared to pay me, and I could legally do it, do so at 13. And I was delighted when I was able to work because I came from, you know, fairly humble beginnings, and it was nice to have some change in my pocket. And so I get it, but that people who want to be able to, to make some money, I get it when they become distressed that they're not able to. And I, 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 you know, we all know why there, there's this interest in keeping people out, keeping people in college as long as they can. So on a personal level, I don't think this should, I think it should be zero and done too. It was collectively bargained and we got the 19. What, again, on, I think it should be no more than the one and done. Um, but, you know, I know that Adam wants to bring it up and I don't want to say, Never, because you never say never. But at this point, they haven't made the argument that 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 has convinced the players' association to to support a two and done. And I'm not certain that they can. You know, I think we, they're not members of of our union. We can tell who is going to be, and those are those. You know, it's not a ton of people that really are going to be able to come in at 18. Um, and so it's sort of interesting. It's interesting to me that we spend so much time talking about. Perhaps on a good. Well, it's year, the principle perhaps. of the thing. It's <laughs> it, it is it is the principle of the thing, and and you know, on the one hand, people say to me, you know, if, if you, you know, if this is sort of a closed shop. They're just there, but so many bodies on every team. So when you invite people in, when people come in, arguably that means people are going to be pushed out, and so the arguments also made. Well, why in the world would the union do anything to allow more more people to come in and take jobs from guys that are in? It, 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 that's a fair argument too. That maybe we should we should make it. Maybe it should be four and done, so that we can keep the jobs we have here. But you know, the interesting and the, the glorious thing about our players is that they're competitive, and they're of the of the view that you know if you're good enough to be able to play at this level and you're 18 years old, then far be it for me to stop you because I I'm afraid for my job. And that's not what I'm hearing from the players. I'm looking at the D League very closely. You're right, they're not members of our union, but some members of our union are going to come from the D-League. They're people who want to be members of our union who go to the D-League in hopes that they can. Um, it is going to be the, the, the subject of discussion because I think even the owners know that we need to start thinking about how this D-League thing is going to fit into the overall system. More and more teams have D-Leagues. And so the discussion is sort of like a three-legged stool. You know, we've got the D League to think about. We've got these these up and coming rooks that that, that want to come into the into the game, um, and then of course we have the interest of our current players, um, which is why we need to sit down and talk about it and and figure out a way to resolve it. Because 
you know, these are issues that, even though they're not yet members of my union, are affecting my union. Um, yeah, and so, there's, certainly, yeah. there's certainly nothing, I would think, to stop the NBA and with your, the union's um, encouragement to make the D-League something more credible, something broader, something mm-hmm. that maybe its players do become members of your union. Well, i got to tell you, the one thing they got to do is pay them. Right. I don't think most people have any clue how little these men are paid. Um, and you know, if, if we're serious about wanting players to not necessarily have to turn to playing outside the United States and you want to keep them here and you want to keep them here then to develop here, then you, know, you pay them more than $25,000 a year. I mean, that's just insane. And then that's, that's only the average. Some, some guys are making far less than that. So I, I actually have spoken to a couple of owners who really want to make the D-League you know, something akin to you know, the minor league in baseball, something more meaningful, and, 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 and because there is an interest in developing young players here as opposed to having them necessarily go to Europe, if they, Europe or wherever if they want to make some, some money at the same time play, play professionally. And the D-League right now has not been the answer. Okay, Michelle, now the challenge round where your value answers can be doubled. I will give you the name of the D-League team, and you give me their nickname. We all know the Fort Wayne Mad Ants. What about, no, what about Erie? You can forget it, baby. You don't know it? <laughs> Delaware. You can, you can forget it. Don't even, don't even bother. I, I, I have... You know, it's so funny that you're doing this because a couple of weeks ago I was asked by one of my colleagues to name two D-League teams, uh-huh. and he said he would buy me dinner at my choice. Let's <laughs> yeah. put it this way. I'm glad I didn't take the bet because there's no way I was going to do it. I, no, I, that's that's... I, I mostly try to concentrate on which of our players are actually been sent down to the D League, but I, I confess about having much, uh, much, much, much insight in that. In that well, if you want to win, if you if you want to win that bet, bet in the future, mm-hmm. the Golden State and San Antonio franchises, uh, respectively, Santa Cruz and Austin, are also the Warriors and Spurs. They kept the name. Thank you, dear. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask one uh, one lightning round question and one serious question. Lightning round question: Did you uh, play? Basketball uh, growing up, I was so bad. <laughs> so, who, so, so bad. which NBA player would you compare your game to? Or would that just be a grievous <laughs> insult uh, to uh, all he, of he your union not, members? Thankfully, he does not exist because if anybody, anyone that played as badly as I wouldn't even wouldn't even make it onto a high school team. I, I, trust me when I say I have no skills. All right. Well, I won't ask you your favorite players because I don't want to force you to choose. But which player? If if you could have uh, the skills of a particular NBA player, who would you want to play like? <laughs> See, that's current, or, current or retired? Let's let's try retired, okay? Because that way I'm not playing favorites. I, I, I have worshipped Allen Iverson's game ever since I saw him play as as in, on at college. Um, I, he is. I love small, scrappy fast guards. And so Iverson, I'm not ashamed to say, is a hero of mine. That's awesome. Um, And that transitions into my question a little bit because AI's image was incredibly important to the NBA when he played. He kind of brought a style to the game in in terms of his encore play, but also his tattoos and cornrows and his tattoos were airbrushed off of the cover of an NBA magazine. Um, and as far as the image of, of players now, I mean, you have guys like LeBron James speaking out on, you know, social justice on issues that maybe players in the past didn't. You have Tabo Cephalosha suing the NYP, 
PD um, after yeah. his leg was broken when he was mm-hmm. arrested and arre- you know the rest that was thrown out. He just won that that uh, mm-hmm. suit. So, mm-hmm. what do you think about the kind of importance of of players speaking out and about um, how players are are looking about talking about you know issues that might be seen as controversial in the public yeah. marketplace vis a vis like you know, wanting to just make money and stay out of out of those kinds of issues. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to date myself, but you know, I, I'm old enough to remember when these two African-American, I guess maybe the three, but two I'm looking at in my mind's eye, uh, were at the Olympics and raised their fists two. and were, as a consequence, pretty much, well, they, they, they didn't end up on any, uh, on any cereal boxes, right? I mean, they, their careers were pretty much damaged because of that display. And and I remember when when you know when Jordan made the comment about both Republicans and Democrats buying his shoes. And so, you know, I, I, I part of me appreciates that you know, our players, just like any any other American citizen, have the right to be apolitical. They have the right not to take positions publicly. I mean, there's no law against being you know, agnostic. Uh, having said that, I will confess that I'm incredibly proud when I do see the players that are passionate about an issue you know, using their, their bully pulpit to, 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 to say something. Um, Pablo's decision to go to trial um, was, 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 was a brave one because you know, a few of us faced the possibility of being incarcerated, and he did faced the possibility, and he was offered a, a deal that would have pretty much eliminated that. Um, but he, you know, he thought that the, there was something more important than that, and he went, went, went forward, and a jury acquitted him, and now he's filing a civil suit, and I couldn't be more proud. And so, you know, I, I, if my position is if a player chooses to, to be agnostic on social issues, that, that's his right. Each of us has that right. But if a player wants to be vocal and, and use, again, his, his popularity to spread a message, I will f- protect his right to do that and fight for him, his ability to do that with every ounce of my, my soul. So, so I don't think there's a right or wrong way for the guys to proceed. Um, but when they do, I'm going to support them. Uh, Michelle Roberts, thank you uh, so much. We hope to check back in with you. Um, and good luck in the negotiations, whether you're a partner or not, whatever, ever you want to term it. <laughs> yeah, you can call me anything you want. <laughs> Just you, well, that's, that's not <laughs> we'll so, call you Michelle you Roberts. <laughs> that, that always works. Michelle Roberts is the executive director of the NBA Players Association. Now it is time for After Balls, and since we just talked to Michelle Roberts, I think we should honor uh, the people who started the NBA Players Association. Uh, Bob Cousy was man who's uh, really credited for it, player, uh, played for the Celtics uh, for his entire career, I think. Um, and then in the 1950s... There was he, no free agency. There was no free agency. He decided the NBA needed a Players Association. Um, he asked his buddy uh, Joe Sherry. Cousy and Sherry were partners in an insurance agency in Worcester, because that's what players did back then. They were partners in Worcester insurance agencies. Uh, Cousy was the association's first president. Sherry was his uh, partner, was the first secretary. I'm getting this info from an obituary in the Worcester Telegram for Joe Sherry. He died in 2007. Um, Bob Cousy describes the early days of the union, saying that his only accomplishment was to get meal money bumped from $5 a day to $7 a day. But 
those two dollars and what it bought the nba players could credit joe sherry in part for that so we honor joe sherry today mike what is your joe sherry I just have reflections on the New York City Marathon. It is the greatest sporting event from a democracy standpoint. My apartment overlooks first. Do you mean there are North Korean sporting events that are better? <laughs> yes. Well, they'll have you believe that their marathon is uh, is on the up and up and democratically open. But Kim Jong-un has won every one with a time of seven minutes. Um, so anyway, there are a couple great things, a couple not so great things about the marathon. This year, it was just amazing. Maybe I sound like a 43-year-old guy as I'm saying over and over. It is amazing what technology can do. So I was saying to myself, wow, I'd like to track the progress of certain people I know and certain celebrities. So yeah, you enter the celebrity name, Ethan Hawke, credit to him by using his real name in registering for the marathon. Alicia Keys went by Alicia Dean, maybe maybe anticipating that her five-hour, 50-minute time, I'm sorry, you don't run a 14-minute mile. You walk a 14-minute mile. I haven't done the Twitter search, but I'm sure 100 people have made the piano on her back joke about Alicia Keys in the marathon. But Alicia Keys went by Alicia Dean. Ethan Hawke went by Ethan Hawke. Tiki Barber went by his real name, Atim Barber. And you could track these people. You could also track my friend Kenny and my friend Saul. So we saw if they (laughs) ran the marathon and beat Alicia Keys. So they banned the jogglers, which are guys who run the marathon while juggling. And I never really liked the jogglers. They seem to be bragging. They seem to be, I don't know, have attention deficit, sticking it to the just regular runners who are doing the boring thing of going 26.2 miles without balls aloft. But I think banning them is wrong. Well, right, well, dozens of people were also dying each year due to knives and, and chainsaws. Yeah, yeah. The, everyone's, I think joggling on the roller bowler is bad. But the joggler ban, it it upset me. I think the jogglers are a little annoying, but they should not be banned from the marathon. But here's what I did, and and I'm going to perfect this next year. So we were able, through my spotter, which is to say my eight-year-old who has better eyesight than I am, he read out bib numbers as they were on the beginning of the block. I punched it into the marathon app, and we got the full name of all the runners and their country. And sometimes the runners put their name on their chest, and maybe you can see what country they're from, but often they don't. So just shouting biographical details to people as they pass by is really inspiring or at least confusing. (laughs) And if we could do this, here's my plan to get a spotter two blocks ahead, radios the information to us. We do quick Wikipedia searches. So as the guy runs by, we could say, you're going to beat your time when you're a senior at UMass. It will confuse and inspire them as the lyrics of the Alicia Keys song go. Thank you, Mike Fesca. I try. Stefan, what is your Joe Sherry? Well, Grantland is dead. So how about a tribute to its namesake, Grantland Rice? Rice chronicled sports in the first half of the 20th century from 1901 until his death in 1954 in what he calculated was in excess of 67 million words, including more than 22,000 newspaper columns, 1,000 magazine articles, 32 years of radio commentaries, and 7,000 sets of verse. The go-to style 
fedora-wearing scribes used to got up athletes and romanticize every pass, putt, and hit. Granny's most famous quatrain and Grantland, the website's motto, is from alumnus football. For when the one great scorer comes to mark against your name, he writes, not that you won or lost, but how you played the game. I have a copy of Rice's memoir, The Tumult and the Shouting, which he finished just 12 days before dying at age 73, and there is much more light verse in there to discuss. For instance, a week into the 1919 baseball season, Rice in his column fellated Babe Ruth thusly. I've seen a few I thought could hit who fed the crowd on four-based rations, but you, babe, are the only it. The rest are imitations? I've seen them swing with all they've got and tear into it for a mop-up, but what they deem a lusty swap to you is but a futile pop-up. I was playing a little wait, wait, don't tell me, fill in the blank there. As godding up goes, that was nothing. In Over the Hills, Rice godded up an entire decade, that crazy golden age of sports from 1919 to 1930. Ty and the Big Babe, Maddie and Cy, Dempsey and Tunney, Thorpe and the rest. Where are the mighty who held the road? Those who dwelt in the gods' abode? Where are the kings who ruled the play? Over the hills and far away. Over the hills and far away. Rice's poetry consists entirely of wispy reminiscing and the erection of statues in grade school rhyme. At the Masters in 1941, Grantland got to thinking about Bob Jones and Ty Cobb, because Georgia, and he pecked out four verses on deadline. Spring is back in the red clay hills where the sun of the south still shines. And I follow the ghosts of youth again through the trail in the lonesome pines where I turn the hands of the old clock back to the glint of the great twin star when Ty was king of the hoof-spiked pack and Bob was the czar of par, the king of the hoof-spiked pack. Ty Cobb, it should be noted, was a degenerate scumbag. You know whom Granny really liked, Josh? Jock Sutherland, the University of Pittsburgh football coach, one of the greatest, who was never sold on the forward pass. There's a fog now over Scotland and a mist on Pittsburgh's field. There's no valiant hand to flash the sword or hold the guiding shield. There's a big brawl fellow missing from the golden land of fame, for Jock Sutherland has left us, and the game is not the same. Really not. Like almost everyone at the time, Rice sucked at the tit of college football, especially Notre Dame. He dubbed the 1924 Irish backfield the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, who... By the way, weighed between 157 and 162 pounds apiece. Rice tut-tutted over recruiting skullduggery and illicit payments, and he wagged his finger at schools who needed to reform. But the answer, he believed, lay in the youngster, the collegian, the boy, the scrub. Perhaps I'm over-featured in the headline-stirring plea. Perhaps I'm more important than a mere game ought to be. But with all the sins they speak of, and the list is quite a span, I'm the soul of college spirit and the maker of a man." When Rice's pal Ring Lardner died, he banged out eight octaves for the next day's papers. Charon, a friend's asleep, give him your stoutest sail. Out through the mystic gate, over the ghostly foam, let all your half-gods wait till he's safe at home. I'm not sure whether those 64 lines are more painful to read than, say, Bill Simmons' 3,400 words on the 13 levels of losing. Okay, I never read the 3,400 words on the 13 levels of losing, but I did read the 48 lines titled The Long Road, that Grantland Rice wrote to close the tumult and the shouting. Far off I hear the rolling, roaring cheers. They come to me from many yesterdays, from record deeds that cross the fading years and light the landscape with their brilliant plays. Great stars that knew their days in fame's bright sun, I hear them tramping 
to oblivion. Tramping to oblivion. Name for a new website, perhaps? Bill Simmons, anyone? It's all yours. Josh, what's your Joe Sherry? So I am uh, really good at working the remote control. So I saw Miami score on the last play of, of the game against Duke live. I was going back and forth between that and the World Series. Um, Miami was down three, a uh, few seconds left. They did some uh, lateral magic on the kickoff return, eight laterals and into the end zone. Let's uh, listen to how they called it on the Miami radio network. 27-24. Here's the kick. It's a squip kick. Just fall down on it. So you save some up. We're going to throw it. Here's a pass to the other side of the field. And it's caught by Corn Elder. Elder's got it at the 30-yard line. He's surrounded. Now he pitches it back to Jaquan Johnson. He picks it up on one hop. He's running backwards. He's looking for a block. He throws it backwards. And it's caught there by Mark Walton. Walton trying to keep it alive. He gets it to Jaquan Johnson. He tosses it back. Here comes another pitch. And Cornelder has it. Looks left. Throws right all the way back to the goal line. Looking for a block is Dallas Crawford. He keeps it alive. Chucks it all the way across the field. It's caught there at the 15. There's a big block at the 30. To the 35 to the 40. To midfield. And still going is Cornelder. He's at the 40-yard line. Come on, oh, baby. Goodness. He might go. Baby. He's at the 20. He's at the 10. At the 5. He scores. He scores. It's a miracle in Durham, North Carolina. So two things I want to note about that. Number one, the guy who scored is named Corn Elder. Can you spell corn? Just, just let that sit. Corn is spelled like the word corn. The second is the guy saying the force is with the Miami Hurricanes. At the end, it's a, some kind of odd product placement there. I don't know if it's like connected to the new Star Wars movie, but it just it hit, hit me in a very strange way. The officials uh, from that game have been suspended for four games because they made four mistakes. The replay crew should have noticed that one of the Miami's players' knees was down. They missed a block in the back, et cetera, and so forth. I think that they decided to let it go just because it looked really cool, which, you know, fair enough. It's just Miami and Duke. It's not like LSU and Alabama, not like a game that matters. Hey, Duke was um, ranked. Cal, Cal players ran through the Stanford band in 1982. We remember the Trinity 15 lateral play to be Millsaps in 2007. These are some of the greatest most exciting plays in football history. And they are nothing at all like regular football, which is weird, but it's also kind of great. And, you know, football is a, we can agree, football is a perfect game. There's nothing wrong with football. Especially the college version thereof. Yeah. Every, every, it's, it's unimpeachable. There's, there's nothing that can be improved, nothing that should be changed. Um, and I think the, the best thing about football, the thing that should be passed on to other games is, you do so something totally absurd that never happens during the game, but is nonetheless within the rules and has the power to bring you ultimate victory at the end. So I was trying to think of how do you bring this this great feature to other sports. So hockey already is the closest to this with teams pulling the goalie to bring on an extra attacker when they're trailing late in games. But that it's not quite right. So what I propose is the teams pull the goalie, giving them six attackers, and then they can pull off each one of those attackers in succession while still maintaining control of the puck. And then you you have the last guy on the ice score, one on six. Maybe the Zamboni's already on the ice because they think the game's mm -hmm. over. And then um, the Zamboni's driven by a Cal trombone player, something like that. Maybe instead of pulling off all the attack, you know, pulling off the goalie, you pull off all the attackers and put in all goalies. Um, I haven't wor quite worked that out. The, my hockey one is the weakest, the weakest here. In basketball, the answer is almost too obvious. You do um, like one of those halftime routines 
where all the guys jump off a trampoline. They do a succession of backflips while tossing the ball off the backboard to the next guy, while the final person in line makes a spectacular dunk. Except you do all of that without a trampoline or with a trampoline that's invisible to the naked eye. That would be against the rules. But I think if you pass the ball back off the backboard while doing flips um, to the next guy and you all catch it in succession, that should give you some extra points. If everyone's dressed in a gorilla costume. <laughs> that would be, that would work, too. Baseball, um, I struggled with a little bit because it's kind of boring um, as a game. The action also isn't continuous, which makes it more difficult. But I've got one that I like that, that I, I came up with. Two outs in the ninth inning, you're trailing by at least a run. You get a guy on base by bunting because it has to, it has to be a bunt just because that's what I decided. Um, then that guy needs to get into a rundown between first and second. And this is actually kind of the most analogous thing to like a one of these lateral plays because you're avoiding the defense at, at odds. You think you should be able to get the guy out and all the defenders are chasing you. But the wrinkle is if you can make the rundown last for at least 10 seconds, then that the trailing team should get to add another player to the rundown. Standard baseball rules apply, except every 10 seconds until someone gets tagged out, you get to add a new runner at first base. So you get two runners, three runners, four runners. And if all of them can get around and score without being tagged out, then that team wins. World Series 2016. <laughs> Stefan remains unconvinced. I'd like to see multiple goalies in soccer during penalty kicks or multiple shooters on multiple goalies during penalty kicks. It is now November 2nd in the East, and there are 15 men on the field. <laughs> <laughs> we love your feedback what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We've got ideas for uh, crazy kickoff lateral type plays. Send them along. Cricket, rugby. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.